prepared? Amen. Amen. I'm just going to keep it simple tonight. I, uh, I'm a big believer in um, God doing what God does. And uh, I'm just going to do a little bit and pray that He anoints that. And then we're just going to spend some time with God. I'm going to keep the message fairly short. And, uh, you know, I believe that there's a word that he wants to speak to us collectively, but I think we should spend some time with God at the end tonight just to see what he would say to us individually following that. And uh, so I think that's, that's going to be fun. But I want to I share some thoughts and insights around the concept of response. Everybody say response. Response. You know, everybody has a response. Everybody has a response, and response matters. And you know, you guys know the old adage, you've probably heard it bandied around the place, it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond to it, right? And, and that is true. In fact, I remember uh, over the years sharing with various people, especially back in the youth pastoring days, and you know, some young guys eyeing up some young girl and saying, hey, you, you know, you reckon I should go for it kind of thing, and it's like, you know, you, you give them advice at these times, and one of the things that I'll always remember is saying, uh, you know, don't look for how they act. Look for how they react. Because how someone reacts can tell you a lot more than how they act, because it's easy to act. Uh, but how you react really shows the level of character and the depth of what you believe comes out when you react, when you respond to things. And so uh, I think especially when you are responding to crisis, it really shows what you believe. And so one of the things we used to kind of tell people, but um, I think it's still, still a good thing to think. The thing is, everything that we think and say and do comes from a framework of various underlying belief systems that we have about things. Everything comes from a belief system that we hold. And our responses to things in life reveal what those belief systems are. I'm going to say that again. Everything we think, say, and do comes from a framework of an underlying belief system we have. And our response to things in life reveals exactly what it is we believe and what those underlying belief systems are. Is that making sense? Yep. Our knee-jerk reactions and our first instinctual response to things tend to show us exactly what we believe. In fact, our responses tells us and others more about what we believe than what our statements do. We say we believe certain things, uh, but it's our responses that really ring whether those things are true, really test whether those things are true. And this is why response matters, because they reveal underlying beliefs and underlying beliefs matter. They really do matter. Proverbs 23, 7 says, For as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And it's an interesting phrase because, of course, we know biologically speaking that um, you don't think in your heart. It's an organ. It beats blood around the body. So what, what is it talking about here? Uh, the, the word, the Hebrew word or term for heart there is actually often understood to mean the second mind. That's what it translates to in Hebrew, the second mind. As a man thinks in his second mind, or what we would call the subconscious. What we really believe at that subconscious level is really what we believe and how we act. 
And so what we believe affects how we respond to things. And the question is, do our responses to things in life indicate faith in that area or do they indicate unbelief? So I would encourage you, if you want to examine what your beliefs are, examine your responses. Think back to certain situations you might have been in and ways you responded to those things and examine those things. Let God in. You know, the Bible talks about examining yourself. You know, search my heart, O Lord. Let him in. And, ex- and responses to things are a really good indicator of what those things really are. In fact, I was talking to a, uh, a business coach a couple of weeks back, and he's a Christian guy. And part of what he does through business coaching is, you know, you help develop uh, goals and accountability to keep those goals. But he helped me examine my underlying beliefs around things like money and around things like business and ministry and all those kind of things. And previously I'd shared with him a memory that I'd had because he was asking me some questions, you know, why do you believe that? And, and why do you say that? And well, where does that belief come from? And he kind of tries to get right back down to the root. Well, why do you believe that and where does it come from? And I, and I shared a story with him from when I was a kid when, because um, I used to love, well, I still love to read. I'm just an insatiable reader. I love reading, always have. And I don't know, for those of you that were in school back in the 90s, uh, you remember those scholastic magazines used to come around and they'd have all the books in them? And they're still around? Oh, they're still around, look at that. And, uh, you know, they come around and they have all the different books and all the different topics and stuff. And I used to love reading those scholastic books and just dreaming about it and I'd pick out all the things. The thing is, though, is that... Uh, my parents, who did an incredible job and did the very best they could, but were, were low-income earners, and so often um, when we wanted certain things that were luxuries, uh, the response was always, well, we can't really afford that. We can't afford that. We can't afford that. And that became a narrative in my mind. And, and, and please hear me right. I honor my parents. They did the very best they, 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 they could with the limited resource they had. But I began to take on a narrative of we can't afford it. And uh, to the point where every time I'd ask, that's the answer I got, so I eventually stopped asking. And I remember these scholastic magazines coming around school and all the kids putting their orders in. And then a, a week or so later, however long it was, all the books would arrive at school in these big bundles and everyone would excitedly run up and they'd unpack it all and get their different books allocated to them. And I remember this one particular time where that happened, but I hadn't ordered any books because I didn't ask because I knew what the answer would be. And I remember sitting there at the school, primary school lunchtime, bawling my eyes out because everyone else had all these books, and I didn't. And it's, it's a memory that stuck with me. And it all came from, I can't afford it. And it's interesting. Anyway, for whatever reason, I think when he was you know, questioning me, I, I, I shared that story. And then later on, he asked me what my goals in business were. And I said, well, one of the main goals for me personally, I'm just being real vulnerable right now. I'm just going to let you into something very deep and personal to me, but, you know, I said, one of my goals in business is to get the business to a point where it uh, runs itself, doesn't need me, um, and it can release me and, and fund uh, me pursuing things in ministry, uh, you know, like studying the Word and teaching the Word. I love to do that, and I want to do that more. I want to read more, study more. I want to do courses and all sorts of things, and so I said, you know, that's one of my goals in business, and uh, to me, that sounds logical. That sounds, you know, good stewarding, and uh he stopped me there and he said, do you realize that what you just said about being in ministry when the business is at a certain point is just another long-winded way of saying, I can't afford it. Because as a kid, because that was a narrative that I grew up with, one of the things that I uh, really committed to, and Sarah can testify to this, 
before the kids came along, I said, I never want that to be our narrative in our house. I never want to be, we can't afford it. Now, that doesn't mean you give everything that they want all the time they ask, but it certainly means you try and find a different response, you know, like, okay, let's work out a way we can get this, or let's put a plan in place to work towards it, or something like that. But I never wanted the narrative to be, I can't afford it. And so because of that, I thought I'd won. I thought I'd conquered the narrative. Until he showed me that the statement that I made had an underlying belief behind it that was just a long-winded way of saying, I can't afford that. And it stopped me in my tracks because I thought I'd, I thought I'd conquered that. And that my mentality and my attitude towards money was rooted in this underlying belief that made my level of involvement in ministry conditional upon meeting some certain criteria. And that might sound logical, but it's not necessarily faith-filled. And it was an amazing insight to me about how we can be subscribing to certain belief systems and narratives without realizing it and, and dressing it up as something that sounds good but it's actually coming from a place where it's not very healthy. So I was incredibly grateful that he pointed this thing out because one of the first ways to uproot something is to identify it. And uh, so, you know, that was a, a journey for me recently. So, so much of our life is dictated by our response to things. It's not so much whether opportunities come, or it's not for lack of opportunity. We live in a land of opportunity. It's how we respond to opportunity. So response matters, but the, but the type of response I want to zero in on tonight is our response to God, our response to the call of God, our response to the plan of God and the promises of God over our life, because those responses matter more than any. And uh, part of unpacking that, I, kinda, I can't really help but include some, some commentary around what we think about the nature of prophetic fulfillment. This might stretch the brain a little bit, but I think when we think about prophecy, we tend to think in terms of something being predestined. Something's predestined by God. And while that is certainly true of biblical prophecy, I'm talking about prophetic words over our life or prophetic words about God's plan and purpose for us or a revelation of God's will for us, something like that. And the thing is, those things, and hear me right when I say this, aren't necessarily predestined. When a prophetic word is spoken over our life, God is not under compulsion to fulfill that. Yeah? God has created us as free will beings with the ability to choose to cooperate, choose to obey or not, whether to align to Him and His word or not. And... I believe that hell is full of people who had promises of God over their life. I know it's a horrible thought, but these are people that were full of potential, full of design, full of purpose. They weren't predestined to go there. I don't believe that. Jesus has made salvation available. He's made the Father accessible. Jesus made a way. The work is finished. But whether or not that is manifested in our life comes down to our response. Because just because God wills something doesn't necessarily mean it will come to pass. Now, I know that sounds a little bit heretical, but hear me right. God is not willing that any should perish, but they do. Why? Because of their response. Am I making any sense? Yeah. 
Interestingly, though, we actually have a biblical example of biblical prophecy changing course because of response. I'm going to read to you Numbers 14. This is uh, just after they've come out of Egypt and there have been, you know, the 10 plagues and the, the separation of the sea and all that kind of stuff. Amazing, amazing miracles. And you guys probably familiar enough to know the story that when they got out into the desert, they started grumbling, complaining, and every term was something else wrong. And, hey, let's go back to Egypt because it was better there and all these kind of things. And Pastor Kelly spoke a little bit about that this morning so well. And Numbers 14, 11 said, the Lord said to Moses, how long will these people reject me? How long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? And then verse 12 says this, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you, speaking to Moses, a nation greater and mightier than they. Wowzers. <laughs> Do you know God said that? This is Numbers 14, verse 11 and 12. Verse 13, but Moses responded. Here's a response. Moses said to the Lord, but then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face. In other words, they see, they know that you're not like their gods. You're seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, if you kill these people as one man, and the nations that have heard of your fame will speak, saying, because the Lord was not able to bring the people into the promised land which he swore to give to them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, the Lord is long-suffering. See, Moses is reminding God of what he previously said. The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children, third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you've forgiven this people from Egypt even until now. And verse 20 says, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Wow. That the response of Moses could change the course of God's intention. Amazing. Then you've got the story of Jonah. God told Jonah to preach to Nineveh that in 40 days' time from when he arrived, the city was going to be overthrown. There was no conditions upon that. There was no criteria upon that which they could escape. It wasn't like, hey, he's going to do this if you don't. He just said, he's going to do this. John, uh, Jonah 3, 4. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk, and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Notice there was, they'll be overthrown if. It was just, no, in 40 days' time, you're going to be overthrown. Previously, God had said, hey, all their evil and iniquity has come up before me, and this is what I'm going to do. But let's look at verse 5, talk about response. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least, and the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king, saying, let neither man or beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Don't let them eat, don't let them drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands, because who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish? Verse 10, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he'd said he'd bring upon them. 
and he did not do it. Again, amazing that how they responded, even though that wasn't necessarily proclaimed, it wasn't saying in 40 days he's going to destroy you unless you repent. He just said this is going to happen. That was prophecy. Yeah? Notice how I said we tend to think that prophecy is predestined. This was prophecy. But their response turned the hand of God because he is loving and full of grace and mercy. Interesting. Specific word, specific time frame, but it didn't get fulfilled. Why? Their response. Their response. Their response revealed their underlying belief. Firstly, they took it seriously that God was going to do what he said he was going to do. (laughs) But it also showed that they believed that God might be merciful and graceful. Otherwise, there would have been no hope, no point in fasting, in turning from their sin. If they didn't believe that God might relent, they wouldn't have bothered doing it. But it revealed an underlying belief in them that maybe if they repent and turn from their sin, that God would change what he said he would do. Wow. Response matters. What we believe matters. This is why prayer matters. Because, hey, if everything's predestined, why bother praying? Right? No. Prayer matters. Prayer changes things. This nation doesn't have to go down the gurgler. Prayer can change things. Our response matters. I didn't hear that, but I'm assuming it's a cheeky remark from Mark because that's what he does. (laughs) One of my favorite quotes comes from healing evangelist Smith Wigglesworth. He says, just believe. That was like the, the, the cornerstone quote of his, of his way he operated. Just believe. Just believe. That's it. Don't overcomplicate. Just believe. Now, in saying all of that, I don't mean to say that man is ultimately in the power seat here. I mean, God is sovereign. God will do what God does, right? There's a balance here between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. I get that, and I'm not about to get into the whole Calvinism, Armenianism thing. But God is sovereign and high above all else, and ultimately his will will be done especially in relation to the ultimate redemption plan that he has in motion. But which side of that you fall on depends on your response. His will will happen. His plan will happen. Where we sit in relation to that is balls in your court. In fact, as I was thinking about the concept of response and how much really rides on that, uh, it made me think of the various times in Scripture that God called people to certain things. And I thought I'd take a look at kind of various responses throughout scripture and uh, I won't go into it exhaustively but to be honest what it shows me is that God himself appears to walk in the fruits of the spirit particularly uh, long suffering because some of the you think about the track record that man has in terms of his response to God and uh, the long suffering that that God has towards us I praise God for that Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna run through a couple of responses but I want to finish in what I believe is the best response in the Bible, outside of Jesus, the best response to God that I've read in the Bible. And it's a fitting one to finish on, given that it's Mother's Day today. So, uh, yeah, well, that'll make sense shortly. But 
Obviously, you know, looking back to the father of our faith, as, as, as told us in Hebrews 6, you know, Abraham, God promised Abraham and Sarah a child through which all the nations of the earth would be blessed, and uh, they laughed at God. I think that's amazing because think about what they'd already seen and done. Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and the pillar of salt with his wife and all these amazing miracles that God had performed for them and even met with them in person, even sat down with three angels, which some scholars say were the Trinity of God, sitting there, meeting with him, talking about this promise of God, all the things he'd seen. And he said, you can have a baby. And he's like, no, I'm too old. You're hilarious, God. Like, isn't it interesting how we can see the miraculous and, and believe for those things? And some things we, find, we struggle, like, what is it? Why, why, why is that so hard to believe when you're seeing this over here? It's interesting. Obviously, we know Moses was called of God at the burning bush, but he had like 15 excuses as to why he couldn't do it and why God obviously hadn't done his due diligence because he's picked the wrong guy, you know. Um, but that was Moses. Pastor Corey preached really well on that a few weeks ago, you know, all the different, all the different responses he had. God called Gideon to victory, but Gideon's response was how worthless, how small he was, how he was the weakest of all the different levels. He was the weakest of the weak, the smallest of the small. He was the least qualified of all the least qualified. That was his response. I mean, God himself, the angel of God, showed up. That shows you things that are supernatural can happen. And despite this experience, he's still like, oh, no, you're limited to me. God called Jonah to go to Nineveh, but as we know, his response was to run. You want to know why? He was racist. <laughs> I'm serious. He was a racist. Let me, let me read it to you. The, the people of Nineveh were Israel's historic enemy. There was a lot of conflict between the people of Nineveh and Israel. And uh, Jonah actually said, like after... After he preached and after they, like, he's, he's like the only revivalist in history that didn't want the revival to happen. <laughs> and one of the greatest revivals was seen through him. Shows you God can do what God does, right? Um, but he didn't want it to happen. In fact, in Jonah 4, uh, it says, after, after God relented on his judgment, it said, this displeased Jonah exceedingly because you didn't destroy an entire city. I'm really mad about this because these were his enemies. This is the definition of racism if I've ever seen it. He says, became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my country? That's why I ran to Tarshish, because I know you're a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant loving kindness, who relents from doing harm. Literally, he was like, I knew you'd let them off if they repented. And I didn't want you to. Goes to the point where he says, therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Unbelievable. How crazy is that? What a racist. Zechariah did the same thing that Abraham did. He's like, I'm too old. Angel comes to him when he's on his duty, priestly duty in the Holy of Holies. And uh, angel comes to him. Again, supernatural event, but that wasn't enough. He's like, no, I'm too old. Just like Abraham. And uh, in each case, because of their response, they went through more hardship than they needed to. It could have gone a lot smoother. But they went through more hardship than they needed to before they arrived at the destiny that God had. I mean, Abraham and Sarah had to go through the whole Hagar and Ishmael thing. And look at the multi-generational impact that's had. Uh, Jonah had to go through the whale, as we know. Zechariah was made mute because he didn't believe the word of the angel, the word of the Lord. It was, but it was Moses' one that interests me the most. Uh, 
Because I want to show you something really, really interesting in the 10 plagues. Because as you know, God called Moses, and he had these ample excuses, and uh, that ended up kind of roping Aaron into doing some of it. But of course, Moses was God's chosen uh, person here, and, and his obedience and his response mattered. So look at this in Exodus 8, in the fourth plague, which we're at uh, the flies, and we can read in verse 21. It says, The house of the Egyptians shall be full of swarms of flies, and also the ground on which they stand. And that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there. In order that you may know that I am the Lord your God in the midst of the land, I will make a difference between my people and your people. Now, you've got to remember, this wasn't the first plague. This was the fourth plague. Israel had been under just as much of the plague and the effects of it as Egypt had up until the fourth plague. Isn't that interesting? question is, why? What was different about the fourth plague than the first three? Let me read to you from the first plague, Exodus seven nineteen. Then the Lord spoke to Moses. I want you to try and pick up the differences here. The Lord spoke to Moses, say to Aaron, take your rod, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams and rivers and everything, that they might become blood. All right? Second plague, Exodus 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand and your rod over the streams and everything, that frogs might come up. Right? Third plague, Exodus 8. 16, so the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, emphasis mine, you're catching the, stretch out your rods, strike the dust of the land and all the lice will come up, all right? But then we get to the fourth plague, Exodus eight twenty. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and all that. And this, you know, say to him, let my people go. And you can read all about that. Let my people go that they might serve me or else if you won't let my people go, I'm just going to send the flies. What's the difference between the first three plagues and the fourth? The fourth was there was no Aaron. This was the first one in which Moses finally began to respond and obey fully to what God had originally called him to do from the beginning. Yeah? Isn't that interesting? And when Moses' response was to finally obey the Lord fully, it resulted in the entire nation of Israel being protected from the plagues. It shows us that our response, our obedience, affects so many more people than just us. Fast forward to the desert before they reached the promised land. Ten spies stopped an entire generation. This is more than a million people entering into the promised land. Why? Their response, their response, it revealed their underlying belief system. Their underlying belief system was unbelief. Only two of that generation got to go in. Not even Moses did. Only Caleb and Joshua. Why? Their response. <laughs> You're getting the theme now, right? Their response. Their response revealed the underlying belief system that they believed that God was able to do what he said he could do. They had an underlying belief system of belief. Remember what Smith Wigglesworth said? Just believe. Just believe. 
and their response revealed what they believed. And God rewarded their belief, but the rest of them missed their destiny because their response was unbelief. But anyway, I want to get to what I believe was the best response ever. Luke 1, 35. And the angel answered and said to her, I should probably give you some context here. This is now Mary. Mary, little Jewish girl. And an angel arrives to her. And there's a little bit of dialogue before this. But at verse 35, we'll pick it up. And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One, being the Messiah, who is to be born and will be called the Son of God. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her, for whom he, she was called barren. For with God, nothing will be impossible. And get this. I reckon this is the best ever. Verse 38. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord let it be to me according to your word. What a powerful response. Let it be to me according to your word. She wasn't like, how's this going to happen? I can't figure this out. This seems impossible. No. Let it be unto me as you have said. Wow. How good is that? After all these other guys throughout the biblical narrative were doubting God, coming up with all these reasons why it couldn't work, and here's Mary, and she's like, oh, good, just go for it, right? I mean, you've got to remember how much was at stake for her on this as well. This was huge. I mean, she risked losing her marriage and therefore her security, her provision for the future. If you were rejected by one for the you know, case of infidelity, then that was it. You weren't going to get married again. In that culture, uh, she risked being shamed by her family and friends. No one would have believed her. She was risking being cast out by society, possibly even losing her life, being stoned under Jewish law. I mean, all of this was at stake here. And she would have known it. And her response yet was, be it unto me as you have said. Wow. No wonder the Catholics love her. <laughs> Pretty cool. By the way, do you want to know why it had to be done that way? Like, why go to all that trouble? Couldn't you just beam him down? <laughs> like, why go through Mary? Why have an immaculate conception? Why risk all of that? Because theologically speaking, the Bible says that through one man, all men have sinned. Jesus had to come sinless. Had to bypass the man, right? This is why, you know, God was his father. Anyway, but it was her response. You know, when the angel opened the dialogue in verse 28, he says, And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you, and blessed are you among women. Why? I'm pretty sure it's because God knew what her response would be. Blessed are you among women, because she believed at his word. And be it unto me as you have said. What a response. You know, what I love about all these stories, even the ones we talked about where they doubted and questioned God, God's plan still prevailed in the end. Abraham was still blessed with a child. Israel still entered the promised land, a generation later, mind you, but the gospel was still preached in Nineveh. The city was saved. Zechariah still had John. 
Because the people that God used grew into obedience into what he was calling them into. Their response went from a reaction of insecurities to finally yielding and trusting that God was able. And this tells me that God isn't only interested in what he can do through you. He's also interested in what he's doing in you. And allowing God to move is both externally impactful and internally transformative. It changes us as we change the world. Yeah? This is why the most mature faith in the kingdom is like that of a child. We think we've got to grow up. You kind of got to go, grow down in some ways. Go, go back to that childlike faith. That's not childish faith. It's childlike faith. What's childlike faith? Well, the kids just, they just, they just accept the world as it's presented to them. You tell them that Santa goes around on Christmas, they believe you. They don't, they don't question until they get to a certain age. They don't question the logistics of getting into seven billion homes with chimneys in one night and making it back to the North Pole. They don't question the logistics of that. They're just like, yeah, this is awesome. Yeah? They just accept. They just believe. They just trust. And the Bible calls us to have childlike faith. Just believe. Just trust. He's God. Just believe. So, just as I wrap up, I believe that God is looking for a response of belief. This is why it says, you know, I, I look to and fro around the earth. Will I find faith when I come? He's looking for a response of belief. This is what Jesus was after when he questioned the disciples about his own identity. He could have just plainly declared that he was the Messiah. He could have made a statement of it. Instead, he made a question of it. I find it fascinating that the central issue of all time for all mankind was framed by way of a question. Who do you say that I am? It's framed that way because a question demands a response. He was looking for their response. And tonight, he's looking for our response to that very same question. Eternity hangs, everything hangs on our answer to that question. Who do you say that he is? So I'm gonna call two altars tonight. I wanna, I wanna offer an opportunity to those who've never come to Christ or perhaps you once have and backslidden. Whatever your background is, whatever your story is, doesn't matter right now because you're here and there's an opportunity to come to Christ. God is looking for your response. What is it going to be? But after that, I want to open the altar to, for those that are already saved, but you're struggling in your faith. You're struggling with unbelief. We all do. We all have these seasons of challenge in our faith. That's because God is growing us line upon line. Think of the promises of God if we just believed them like Mary did. If we just responded like Mary did, 
And the Bible says that I am more than a conqueror. And we think, oh, no, you know, because I'm still struggling with this and I did this yesterday. And like, no. If it says you're more than a conqueror, be it unto me as you have said. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation for those in Christ. Oh, yeah, but I messed this up and I did that wrong. No. If there's no condemnation for those in Christ, let it be unto me as you have said. The Bible says when the sun sets free, is free indeed. Oh, but I still struggle with this. I still, I still I feel wrapped. No. If it says the sun sets free, is free indeed, then let it be unto me as you have said. Come on now. This is transformative. This response of belief towards God can transform your life like nothing else. But it starts with the first response, which is, who do you say that I am? So perhaps I could grab the team up and we could all stand and close our eyes just to give everyone a moment of privacy because I'd love to make that invitation to those who need to answer that question of who do you say that Jesus is. Can I tell you, he wasn't just a good man. He wasn't just some prophet. He wasn't just some teacher that had some good ideas about peace and love. He claimed to be God. He claimed to be God and we know this because that's why the Romans put him to death. Because he committed blasphemy, that he would dare as a man say that he was God. But our answer to that question is so critical because the Bible talks about how all of us, every single one of us, are born into this thing called sin. Sin is like a terminal disease that we're all born with. The Bible says that no one is righteous, no, not one. That every person has fallen, has fallen short of the standard of the glory of God. And if that's where we were left, then we would stand condemned before God. But the Bible says that the wages or the consequence of sin is death. That is the just response. That is the perfectly just justice of God, His response towards sin. God can't pretend that sin hasn't happened. He can't just sweep it under the carpet. God is, in His justice has to deal with it. And in His perfect justice, the Bible says that death is the only appropriate response or consequence to this thing called sin. And we are all responsible for sin. None of us in our right mind will claim to be perfect. We know inherently that we are sinners in need of saving. And I know that might offend you, and it's certainly not my intention to offend you, but that is the bold truth of where we all sit before we come to Christ. Sin condemns us. Sin separates us from a God who loves us. But that's the beautiful thing about God because He isn't just a God of justice. He's a God of love. So while His justice demands that death should occur as a penalty of sin, His love said, I don't want that death to be yours. I don't want that separation to be yours or to be mine. And so what He did in one beautiful, amazing move, one that not even the enemy saw coming, He sent His only begotten Son, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Have you ever wondered why Jesus died on the cross? It's because He paid the penalty. He fulfilled justice before God. He took it so that we didn't have to. That is God showing His perfect justice and His perfect love in one beautiful move. And that is available to you right now. But whether or not that is manifest to you, comes down to your response. So the question is, what is your response tonight?